0: Let's turn to Matthew 19. We're going to the book of Matthew, and we are currently uh, hitting chapter 19. We're about to jump in it this morning. Since chapter 18 of Matthew, we have seen how to live in community with humility, and that community piece is going to carry over today into three topics I think three topics that will probably hit every one this morning on singleness, marriage, and children. So let's stand and I'm going to read a portion of Matthew nineteen. Starting in verse one. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. You may be seated. We're going to deal with these three topics, marriage, singleness, children, and the first topic we're going to jump into is this idea of marriage and divorce. And before we move into this section on marriage and divorce, I want many of you to be reminded that God is a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of restoration, and every time I, I preach about Uh, marriage and divorce, there's always those among us who have been divorced. And I just want you to know, there is hope, there is forgiveness, and restoration in Jesus Christ. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump in with verse 1. Jesus had finished these things. He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And then verse 3 says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's a good question. And what these leaders are about to do, they're about to bring up this passage in the Old Testament that you may not be familiar with. We're not going to look at it today, but it's a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, was it originally a portion of Scripture? that was describing a worst-case scenario in case a divorce ever happened. It did not condone divorce, and it simply made provision, especially for the woman, if a divorce occurred in order to protect her. So what the leaders of Jesus' day did, they took that passage from Deuteronomy 24, and they turned it into a discussion about marriage and divorce because in that passage it says that a man can divorce a woman for an indecency he finds in her. What's the indecency? And so the debate began. Is the indecency her sexual morality? Is indecency because she went outside and she had her hair down? Was the indecency that she burned dinner? was the indecency that he found a better deal in another woman because she wasn't looking so good. And this is a lot of the discussion and debate that was going around centered around this indecency found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And they're basically saying, how can we get out of marriage? So let's just say you live back then and you're struggling with your marriage and you go to the pastors, Pharisees of the day, and you need help in your marriage. Well, rather than helping you with restoration issues, they would help you figure out how you can get out of your marriage. And Jesus is going to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what Deuteronomy 24 is about. And in fact, what Jesus is going to say, let's not look at Deuteronomy 24. Let's go even further back in the Bible to Genesis, to God's original plan of marriage. And he's saying, Pharisees, you are simply... Looking at the wrong text. Let's keep going. Verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Let not man separate. So Jesus takes him back all the way to the beginning. He takes him back to the book of Genesis. And God's plan from the beginning was that a man and a woman would leave their parents and become one flesh. And one flesh is a reference to the sexual union and also the start of a new family. They're no longer two, but one flesh. And the most important part of a a marital union between a man and a woman is that God has joined them together permanently for life. And this this permanence of marriage is to depict this spiritual reality between God and his people. Because as a husband and wife is mentioned in the Old Testament, so is this the reality of God is with his people, Israel. And even in the New Testament, you have a husband and wife depicting God in his relationship between Christ and the church. So the marital relationship is to show, look, God's relationship with his people is permanent, so your relationship with your spouse is also to be permanent. Now, as a pastor of this church, I do, you know, a few weddings a year. In fact, I'm doing a wedding coming up soon. And during these, these weddings, I try to stress the fact of the permanence of marriage. Like, this is, this is for life, this, this is for good. Now, the part of the ceremony that, that most people that are sitting out in the congregation that are looking forward to is the part in their ceremony where the husband and wife kiss. Everybody's looking forward to it, except for me. Because I'm like two feet away. It is so embarrassing and awkward to just like, what am I supposed to do? Look right at, where am I supposed to look? Right? They're right here. But right before that kiss portion, I quote Jesus and I say, what God has joined together, let man not separate. You may kiss your bride. That's what I'm going to do from now on. But God's original plan is to bring a man and a woman together Permanently, this this is lifelong thing here. Until death do you part. Let man not mess with this. But the Pharisees are like, yeah, but what about Deuteronomy 24? What about Moses? He's the one who talked about Deuteronomy 24. And look what they say. Look what they say in the next verse, verse seven. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So the Pharisees are like, ha ha. What about Moses? If marriage is permanent, then what about the situation Moses is talking about? Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus equates divorce with adultery. The man divorces a woman and he marries another, he commits adultery. You go, well, why is it adultery? Well, in God's eyes, he's still married to the original wife. And the only allowance that I guess would break this union in this context is sexual morality, which would include adultery and other forms of sexual sin. So divorce is never required, but is permitted if this ongoing sexual sin is not repented of and dealt with. Divorce in this context is permitted. There's one other exception, it seems like, from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 gives a, an example of a, of a marriage where a believer with an unbeliever and the unbeliever deserts uh, that, that, the desertion in that marriage. It seems like there's also another allowance for uh, marriage. And in these situations remarriage doesn't seem to be forbidden. Now I know that as soon as I say these things, there are people that have questions. Uh, What about this situation? What about this exception? What about this scenario? What about my parents? What about my situation? And all I I wanna say is that if you got specific situations that you wanna talk about, feel free to come talk to me and the elders and we can work through these things with you. But I can't create a whole sermon about exceptions because the point is not the exceptions. That's not the argument that, that Jesus wants to talk about. That's what the Pharisees want to talk about. That's what they're talking about. How can we get out of marriage? Jesus is talking about marriage and the permanence. So the Pharisees totally missed the point of Deuteronomy 24, and they missed the point of marriage altogether. The point of, of Deuteronomy 24 is for the protection of the woman in case of divorce happen, there would be a process of writing her a certificate of divorce so she could be remarried and not be left totally destitute. The the passage, once again, does not command divorce, but it permits divorce in a worst-case scenario. And Jesus says specifically that Moses did this due to your hardness of heart. It was the hardness of heart that that Caused a divorce to happen, and because of the hardness of heart, Jesus or Moses was creating this protective measures from God, because to protect women. It was the hardness of heart that caused divorce back in Moses' time, and it's the hardness of heart that causes divorce in our time. When a divorce occurs, it's generally because of the hardness of heart, and I want to explain the hardness of heart to you a little bit. Uh, Sometimes the hardness of heart can be manifested in in violent ways in a marriage. Some of you maybe have experienced this, where there is abuse, there is addictions, there is verbal fighting and physical fighting, and and then a, a divorce happens within that context. Maybe you've experienced that. But I just want to tell you, most divorces are not because of that kind of hardness of heart. I mean, when you think of divorce, you may think people are just throwing down but most divorces are not like that. There's this, this journal out there, maybe some of you ha- read it, the Journal of Marriage and Family, and they seem to indicate that most divorces occur in the context of low conflict in marriage, low conflict. And they, it's, it's described that in these, these marriage relationships, the relationship is kind of frazzled, or in other words, it's, they're kind of a, a cranky marriage. Or on the other end, you can just look at the marriage and go, it's just kind of a a lethargic marriage. It's kind of droopy. It's like many of these marriages are just kind of ambivalent, and and they're thinking to themselves, is this it? You mean for the rest of my life I have to put up with this person and their crankiness? and It's just a boring relationship. There's no sparks flying. There's no excitement. And i got to endure this? For the rest of my days on this earth, you see, it's that subtle hardness of heart. It's not the throwing down stuff. It's that subtle stuff underneath that can mess up marriages and and lead to divorce. And so for all of you who are married or, or one day hope to be married, one of the biggest struggles you will have and one of the biggest struggles that married people have, if you want to know what it is, it's about keeping their hearts Soft toward their spouse, about keeping their hearts tender and loving toward their spouse, because there are thousands of ways for your heart to get hardened every day, and you keep building upon that, and you harden it even more and more and more. I want to do a little, um, I don't usually do a lot of counseling sessions, and this many people, but let's do a little counseling session right now. You can pay me later. I was reading something recently uh, by this guy, a guy named, his last name's Rieger. He, he talked about different manifestations of the hardness of heart. And, you know, a counselor pastor, he came up with a ton. He came up with like 12 of them. I'm not going to give you all 12. But I want to give you a few snapshots of what the, a hardness of heart could look like in your marriage or your future marriage. And if you are married right now, I think a good exercise is where you're at right now. Identify your hard heart, not your spouse's. Like when your spouse comes up on the screen, don't go, well, that's you. You better work on that. No, deal with your own. All right? So let the counseling session begin. Here's a few indicators of heart is heart. Number one would be the rejected heart. This will be people maybe come from a background of a lot of issues, a lot of rejection. And so in marriage, when conflict happens in marriage, you may feel unloved. And when you feel unloved, you may just totally shut down. You ever been in an argument with your with your spouse and they just totally clock out? They're like, you're like, where did you go? Why are you not engaging me anymore? Where did you go? Maybe they just shut down because they've had this their, their hardness of heart manifests itself in this rejected heart. Another kind of heart is the angry heart. This is the heart that is expressed and put downs. So if there's a lot of sarcasm in your marriage, or maybe some emotional abuse through your words. And some of you, you're married to the angry person. And that's a hard place to be when you're always kind of walking around on eggshells wondering when they're going to go off. You, you may be the angry person yourself. Well, the next heart is the detached heart. This is the person who has the ability to turn off their emotions toward their spouse. It's like all of a sudden there's no tenderness. There's no love. There's a Christian artist. Her name is Sarah Groves. She has this whole CD. And I think most of the songs are centering around relationships. And she says in one of her songs, she says, all tenderness is gone in the blink of an eye. Just like that. The the detached heart just pulls away, shuts down. And there's just no connection. All tenderness is gone. The next heart is the judgmental heart. This is the person... Critical, judgmental, lacks grace. Basically, they they look at their spouse and they say, you know what? I just hate to say this, but you always fall short of my standards, and you never live up to my standards. It's a judgmental heart. The next one is the controlling heart. Some of you are married to the very controlling spouse who wants to control everything about your life, who wants to manipulate your emotions and manipulate your schedule. There's no freedom in this marriage because it's all about control. The next heart is the immoral heart. And you know who you are. This is not just going out committing adultery. Just looking at pornography... This is fantasizing about being married to someone else. It's the hard heart. The last one I want to share with you is the temporal values heart. This is a spouse you never see because they're cranking out the hours at work, thinking about accumulating more stuff, spending a lot to, to keep up this, this high status. The temporal values heart. Can you identify your heart? Can you identify the hardness of heart? And and what do you do about it? You go, well, I've identified my heart. I've identified my spouse's hard heart. And the solution is we need to get a divorce. Where are those certificates at that Moses talked about? You may think it's your time to bail. But here's the good news. Jesus, this is like for real, Jesus deals with hard hearts. He comes in to soften hard hearts. For those of you who are just so violent and angry in your marriage, he can, he can turn you into a tender man or a tender woman because he deals with sinners tenderly. If you are a detached person, you don't want to engage in conflict, by grace, Jesus will give you the power to engage in in conflict with much grace. If you're that person who doesn't want to serve your spouse, you want to be self-focused by the power of God, then dwelling Holy Spirit, as Jesus has served you in the gospel upon the cross, he will empower you to serve your spouse. I just want to say there is hope. There's no marriage that I think that when people are submitting to Jesus, there cannot be a breakthrough and a breaking of that hard heart and turning it into a tender heart. There can be restoration. You may have been in conflict, maybe a low-level conflict for years, but there can be a turnaround. There can be a restoration. There can be a, a future for you. And, and I just want to say, we're not a big church. We don't even own our own building. We don't have a lot of programs going on. But one thing that we do well is that we can throw everything we have at you to help you improve your relationships. So if you're a woman who's married here and you need to be a better wife, we have something called FBOW for better or worse groups. Women get together and they don't get together and talk about how awful their husbands are. Wouldn't that be a great group? None of that. You work on your own stuff. Not only do we have premarital counseling and, and marriage mentoring, but we even have pre-engagement mentoring. So even before you get engaged, we can mentor you, see if this direction you want to go. And, and even if you're not at that point, we actually have dating mentoring. Seriously, like, really? Yes, really. Like, if you're dating somebody and you're like, are we even on the same page spiritually, what we're doing in life? We, we will mentor you and walk with you through this relationship. And all those contacts are in your bulletin. But just keep that in mind. We're going to throw everything we have at you because Jesus deals with hard hearts and he softens them. So divorce and broken relationships do not have to happen. Well, the disciples are hilarious. And, and look what they say in verse 10. I, I mean, they're just crazy. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife... It is better not to marry. It's like they see these high standards and you're like, Are you kidding me? You mean that I could be stuck married to a cranky woman the rest of my life? And so they flippantly con- comment, It's better not to marry. And Jesus, he's patient. He doesn't go off on them. He doesn't even, doesn't even address their, their flippancy. But he, he gets very serious. And he's like, Okay, Let's deal with this topic of not marrying. Since you brought it up, let's talk about that. And he does. Look what he says in verse 11. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. The saying is a reference to someone who has um, chosen not to marry. They've decided on maybe lifelong celibacy. Uh, And it's, it's not for everyone. Jesus continues, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, that the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And a eunuch is a reference to someone who for whatever reason, can't function sexually due to a birth defect, or maybe they were later castrated to work with harems. You can think about the Ethiopian unit. Not sure what his responsibilities all entail. Then it says those are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about literal castration for Jesus. Though there was a man in church history who castrated himself for Jesus, I mean, it'd be kind of a bummer to explain to him later it's not literal. I, it's like, anyway, it's talking about this, the celibacy in order to, to serve Jesus all out in the kingdom, service to him. And it, and it's, it seems to be a calling because he says, it's for those people who are able to receive it, receive it. And those who have chosen to receive it, this celibacy, this single, singleness, it's a time in their lives, maybe the rest of their lives, where they can give undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the way the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 7, this undivided devotion to the Lord. Because when you are married, you have to deal with the cares of this world and a spouse, the anxieties in this world that come along with marriage and perhaps even, even children. So some have chosen to remain single. Think about the Apostle Paul or Jesus. Many examples throughout church history, and even today, of men and women have decided to forego marriage and to go all out for Jesus with undivided attention. And most of you, a little show of hands, most of you in our church right now are single. So I'm talking to most of our church. Most of you are single, but probably most of you... Want to get married one day? That's my guess. Maybe some of you really feel a strong calling in your life where you are going to be single and serve the Lord until you meet him, and that is your calling and that is maybe your gift. Praise God. But most of you have this desire within your heart to get married. And and these single years that you have before you are are years of great opportunity, but some of you, just got to admit, they can be pretty painful too. There's some of you who are single. You have a lot of different emotions about your singleness, and maybe you express that in different ways. But there's sometimes in your singleness that you wonder, is God against me? Because if it's my heart's desire to get married, and I'm not getting married, then God must be against me. And you, you may deal with a lot of loneliness. You're like, I just want someone to love, and, and someone to love me back. And, and, and mixed with that, just you kind of wonder: Am I even desirable? Does, do, does someone else ever going to desire me or want me? Or they're just does everybody reject me? Does anybody want me? And, and you have all these conflicting emotions. And and I and, I, and love, I just I just want to encourage you to, and remind you of what you already know of the character of God and the gospel of Jesus. God is not against you. He is for you. He has not abandoned you. You are desirable to a holy God through Jesus. He is absolutely for you, and he will take you in. And your marital status does not mean that your status before a holy God has changed, for he accepts you and welcomes you in. So the last thing I want to do is kind of play down the struggles and pain that some of you may face in your singleness. Those, that's real pain. And God is a real God of love who welcomes you in and accepts you and loves you. But I also want to say, most of you will one day, in God's sovereignty, get married. So I want you to see right now your singleness as a real opportunity to serve the Lord, a real opportunity to to go all out for Jesus. So if you're single, rather than waiting around for marriage or rather than totally just thinking about and obsessing on not being married and what you're missing out, it's an opportunity to serve the Lord. And I would say to some of you singles, I'm not going to say it's not for all of you, but I I should say for most of you singles, not for all, but for most, this is an opportunity in your life to take risks for Jesus. It's time for risk. There's things that you can do right now as a single person that it's not going to be so easy for a married person to do with kids. It's just it's reality. And it's not just the reality I'm making up. Paul says the same thing. You're, be, you're distracted with the anxieties of this world when you're married. So you have more freedom. So I want to speak to some of the students. You're going to have a choice right now coming up around Christmas as you project toward your summer what you're going to do. And I want to encourage you to consider doing something this summer where you can go all out, whether it's evangelism or caring for others or on some type of trip where you're taking risk, to do it. Put off the internship. There will be other days that you can do your internship other summers. Go all out this summer. Some of you should use your, your singleness to to be a ready response team that when a catastrophe hits, you can go there immediately. You you don't have you can leave behind you don't, you're not leaving behind a wife or a husband or kids. Like if something happens, there's a tsunami, you can go and bring the gospel. There's a famine in northeast Africa, you can go and bring the gospel. And I would even challenge some of you that when you finish school, to take a year off. Don't go right into the workforce. Go and raise some money. Go on some mission. Or maybe you can serve orphans and widows. Go out there where you can proclaim the gospel. Take some time to say, look, I'm not burdened right now by family, and I can go all out to do that. Maybe some of you are thinking about going to seminary, and you're single. go now. Go now. I I would say not for everybody, but I would say for the most part, if you're deciding between kind of the safe and secure way of life, a decision you have, or something that's risky, do the risky thing. Go for it. This is a time that you can do it, and you might not be able to do it later. Go for it. Single is an opportunity to serve the Lord all out. And now Jesus turns a little bit, and he talks about this last topic of children. Let's finish up with children. Look at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So the children are brought to Jesus simply that he can pray for them. The disciples rebuke the adults because they assume they're doing Jesus a favor, since Jesus is on this grand mission, he can't be disturbed by these annoying children. So the disciples rebuke them. And then Jesus, in turn, rebukes his disciples. I love it. He says, oh, let the kids come to me. Let them come to me. And he rebukes his disciples because the disciples are forgetting that the children depict the humble dependence that is needed for his disciples. You're not to hinder children from coming to Jesus because that's the way the adults are supposed to be, like kids, dependent, humility, humility totally need everything from Jesus. The kids are a wonderful picture of this. Let them come to Jesus because that's the way you're supposed to be. God's kingdom belongs to those. His reign belongs to those who are dependent like children. And I was wondering about this. Who would Jesus rebuke today from hindering children? Who would he rebuke today? You're like, well, he would definitely rebuke the public schools. That's too easy, right? Oh, he would definitely rebuke the media. That's too easy. I think he would rebuke the parents. I think more than anybody else, it's the parents that hinder their kids from coming to Jesus. I mean, we get so on mission. I mean, sometimes we get on mission for Jesus. Jesus. And we hinder our kids from coming to Jesus because we are so busy. We have errands to run. We have tasks to complete. We are people that are driven. And we don't take the time to bring our kids to Jesus because we're so busy. And I believe if our kids could rebuke us, if they knew what to say, they would. Can you imagine... One day you pick up your baby and your baby rebukes you. it be amazing. I found this baby outfit I want to show you. Can you put this up? That, that is convicting. That is convicting. We're so caught up in our task, we're so caught up that we, we, we can't even focus on our children and bringing them to the Lord. Because, see, some of us have this motto. What is the least I can do in my kids' turn out to be Christians? What's the least I can get by with, and hopefully they're going to they're turn out to follow Jesus? What's, what's the least I can do? That's not the right way to think about it. It is your role. It is your duty. It is your joy and your responsibility to bring your kids to Jesus to train them in the ways of the Lord, consistently giving them the gospel, loving with them, teaching them the truth, and then also playing with them and teaching them the truth and playing with them and bringing them to Jesus. And and the the wonderful thing about this as parents is that we are going to fail miserably over and over and over again. It's like we get this fresh vision, okay, we're going to do family worship and devotions and prayer and memorize scripture and we do good for about a week and then we tank. But you know what? Start again. Let's keep starting again. Let's keep repeating this. Let's keep starting over. Let's keep giving our kids Jesus and bringing them before him. Constantly. Let's not hinder our children from coming to Jesus. You know what? Our kids represent what we're supposed to be like. They represent what we're supposed to be like. Did, Did you know that if I understood what Jesus is saying better, not only would it make me a better parent, it would make me a a better follower of Jesus. That every time I see my kids, God has given me a picture of how he wants me to be. Every time I see them, like every time I see them, that's how I want you to be, Jason, just like that, totally dependent upon me every day I I totally sometimes get frustrated. My children, they are so dependent upon my wife and I for for everything. And I just want to tell you, it is not easy managing our basketball team of five kids. Can you imagine a basketball team moving in with you and you just gotta manage them? That's what it's like. And I figure, and I should write this down sometime, but in one in each day there's probably 50 200 demands placed upon us, whether they're spoken or not, of things that we have to do to keep them alive <laughs> and functioning. <laughs> uh, from, you know, one of them needs a diaper change, to food, uh, to drinks, to transportation, uh, and to answering questions. Oh, the questions. Uh, questions about homework, questions about scheduling, more questions about scheduling probably than anything else. Uh, questions about the meaning of life. <laughs> there, there's uh, washing the clothes. Thankfully, my wife's wonderful at that. Um, uh, teeth brush, uh, baths given, hair fixed. books read, stories told, backs rubbed, and then start and wake up and do it all over again. And some days I think, okay, let's just stop. Can't you do this on your own? Please, just, just do it on your own. No, they can't. And that's the point. As they are totally dependent upon me and my wife, I'm supposed to say, oh, I get it. Thank you, God, I get it. That's the way I'm supposed to be with you. Totally and completely dependent. And so as the kids run to Jesus into his arms, I'm not supposed to jump in the way and say, don't go to Jesus. I'm supposed to go, I'm supposed to be unlike the disciples and go, wow, the kids are running to Jesus. That's where I should go. I should be running into his arms as well. I'm totally dependent upon him, and each day I get this wonderful, wonderful picture that all of us are to be his children who run to him for grace and for forgiveness and for power <laughs> to, to love others and to ask him, Jesus, soften my heart. I can't do it. For grace and, and comfort when you may be lonely and sinless or need power to rest. I need you, Jesus, for absolutely everything. So now, I want to run into your arms. Let's pray. Father, we are all helpless children who are just sinners broken before you. And we should run into your arms. There is so much grace there. And Lord, when we have hard hearts, we do not want to run to you, but we want to run from you. And I just ask, Lord, there's anybody running from you this morning that you go after them, that you would break them, that you would soften their hearts, you would forgive their sins, bring this to bring them to repentance and faith through your finished work on the cross. I pray specifically, Lord, when we have this time of communion, that you would do a significant work in marriages, in uh, and, and people who are, are single, on parents, all of us, Lord. Do a work on our hearts. Keep us tender and soft before you. If there's anything we need to confess or lay before you this morning, that significant things will happen as we come and meditate on the cross and your work for us. Do a great work now. In Jesus' name, amen.